National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of National Security This Week. We have a fantastic show for you today a show which has happened only through fortunate circumstances and the generosity of our guest and his time while visiting Minnesota. We're pre-recording this show on Wednesday afternoon, April 12th, at the University Club in St. Paul, where our guest will be speaking to the Committee on Foreign Relations chapter here in Minnesota. Our longtime listeners know we've done a series of shows on the U.S. intelligence community, and for today's show, a special edition of National Security This Week, we're joined by former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Mr. John Brennan. John Brennan served as director of the CIA from March of 2013 until January of 2017. As director, he was responsible for intelligence collection, analysis, covert action, counterintelligence, and liaison relationships with foreign intelligence services. From January of 2009 to March of 2013, Mr. Brennan was deputy national security advisor and assistant to President Obama for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism, shaping and coordinating Obama administration policies on counterterrorism, Homeland Security, pandemics, cyber attacks, and natural disasters. Mr. Brennan began his government service at the CIA, where he worked from 1980 to 2005. He served as CIA's daily intelligence briefer to President Clinton, as Chief of Staff to then-Director of Central Intelligence George Tenet, and Deputy Executive Director. In 2003, he led a multi-agency effort to establish the National Counterterrorism Center and served as the center's first director. Mr. Brennan graduated from Fordham University in 1977 with a bachelor's degree in political science, conducting field research in Indonesia in 1974, and studying at the American University in Cairo in 1975 and 76. He earned a master's degree in government from the University of Texas at Austin in 1980. Mr. Brennan currently serves as a distinguished fellow at the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, as well as as a distinguished scholar at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a member of the Board of Trustees of the International Institute of Strategic Studies, a senior intelligence and national security analyst for NBC and MSNBC, a member of the Board of Directors of Immunity Bio Incorporated, and an advisor to a variety of private sector companies. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad, a memoir of his career in public service. John Brennan. Welcome to National Security This Week. It's an honor to be with you here at the University Club. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate the invitation. It's wonderful to be in the beautiful state of Minnesota, especially the beautiful city of St. Paul. And it's a, it's a warm one today. <laughs> it's a very warm one. I wasn't <laughs> expecting this at all. We weren't either. We weren't either. So you're here uh, just to speak to the Committee on Foreign Relations? Or? That's right, yes. I was invited to speak uh, to the group uh, by a former uh, agency colleague. Okay. Uh, and so I couldn't decline the opportunity to come up here and uh, spend some time with folks tonight. Did you get a chance to see a little bit of uh, the Twin Cities today? I, I flew in. Okay. <laughs> so you saw <laughs> so it from the air. <laughs> but also I walked a little bit around St. Paul. It's a beautiful city. It's my first <laughs> time here. So it's, I'm really enjoying it. And particularly since on a, such a beautiful day, I was able to enjoy the, the sunshine. And yeah. uh, Director Brennan, we, we should get started. I want to make sure I take full advantage of uh, have having you with us for this hour. Uh, I'd like to begin by asking you about the CIA. Uh, it's my understanding that when you took over as director, you instituted some some organizational changes uh, based on lessons learned from the global counterterrorism and counter, counterinsurgency operations that we've been doing for about a decade at that point. And, and what I mean by that is we learned in both the Department of Defense, I'm a retired naval intelligence officer, 
and in the U.S. intelligence community uh, writ large that combining operations, intelligence, and support personnel into functional teams was the most effective and efficient way to carry out both counterterrorism and counterinsurgency. Uh, What can you tell us about how the CIA is organized today? And it's dealing still with the the challenge of Salafi jihadism, but also this broader geostrategic challenges of China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and others. Well, as you point out, John, the CIA has global responsibilities, and the world is a big place, and the CIA has to be able to uh, monitor developments around the globe and make sure that our policymakers are fully informed about the threats and challenges that we face, as well as the opportunities. And so when I was working at the White House, I was frequently a recipient of CIA's briefings and input. And having worked at the CIA for 25 years previously, I knew that the CIA had a lot more to offer. Uh, And so when I became the director of the CIA, um, I decided that I was going to integrate the capabilities because I was so impressed with what the Department of Defense did under the Goldwater-Nichols Act in the, in the 1990s by bringing together the services, the Marines, the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, so on, into these combined commands. Uh, and so what I did after a couple of years at the agency, because uh, I wanted to make sure I understood exactly all the implications of doing such a drastic overhaul, uh, we created what's called mission centers, and they're based on regional areas as well as on functional issues. And in those centers, you have the experts who have the training and the skills in analysis and operations and covert action, open source information, uh, cyber, uh, all of that. So they're working closely together to make sure that they're able to bring to bear all of the capabilities, the authorities, the talents, the expertise of CIA in a very coordinated and collaborative manner so that we're able to optimize our ability to, again, uh, understand what is going on throughout the world, uh, both regionally and, again, functionally. Could you talk a little bit about which regions exist in those centers, or is that uh, sort of... Well, no, for, well it's in, I try to do is to look at how the military is organized. And so you have a Middle East area, you have Africa, uh, you have uh, Europe and Eurasia, and you have uh, East Asia, China. Uh, Latin America. Uh, so what you want to do is to make sure that you're able to look at these areas because a lot of the regional issues are interrelated in terms of the, the countries that are, are there. Uh, and those functional issues are on terrorism or proliferation or counterintelligence. Uh, and so uh, I think that the the system is working well. It, it survived my departure. That's uh, a good so sign. Yeah, it is a good <laughs> sign because there were some people who wanted to bring it back to the old ways. Uh, but I'm glad to see that that integrated structure. And under the current director, Bill Burns, who is a phenomenal leader, a good friend and a former colleague of mine, uh, he believes that this is allowing the, the agency to do its work um, across all of these different issues and regions in a very effective fashion. And I know that the, the Intel, Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004 really sort of uh, set a new standard for the broader intelligence community for how we needed to collaborate with each other across all the partners Uh, I'm assuming that uh, in these centers there are probably liaison officers from the other intelligence agencies and maybe the services as well? Yes, there there are. And after 9-11, I think it was clearly recognized that the agencies and departments had to collaborate more among themselves, not just internally in CIA. And so that's why when I was asked to stand up the National Counterterrorism Center, we had CIA officers, NSA, the National Security Agency, FBI, Homeland Security, Secret Service, Coast Guard, Department of Energy, Department of Treasury, and others to be able to work and bring to bear not just their expertise and authorities, but also their data, Mm. their systems, their networks, and so we could have a more integrated information technology architecture as well, so we're able to pulse data against other data that 
resides in other agencies. So, uh, again, I think we've learned a lot of lessons uh, over the years. Um, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act uh, tried to uh, bring greater harmony to the community as a whole. I still think we have a ways to go on that. But we are far more collaborative and even far more integrated than we were uh, prior to 9-11 and uh, prior to the, that uh, act being passed. Yeah, I, I was commissioned into uh, into the Navy in uh, May of 1990, started as an intel officer in 91, so I was about 10 years into my intel career when 9-11 happened. And it was a, it was a relatively rapid change uh, after 9-11 in the amount of collaboration I saw amongst the partners in the intel community, and certainly after the 2004 act. So uh, th- thank you for being uh, chosen <laughs> to be the director of CIA during the time frame you were. Well, sometimes, unfortunately, it takes uh, a, an event like 9-11 uh, to be able to f- serve as a forcing function to get the government to actually update some of its systems, practices, and uh, organizational structures. Uh, and so we've had a lot of changes also in the cyber realm because the cyber realm has, has evolved uh, so dynamically and so rapidly over the years. And so I do think that a lot of the institutions of government and in the intelligence community, a lot of these were formed in the, quite frankly, the 18th and 19th century, <laughs> yeah. and technology has left a lot of it behind. And so therefore, I think we have to update our systems, but also the way we interact and interoperate with one another. And I'm hoping that the leadership of the current day as well as the future is going to see that collaboration and integration as really a winning strategy. Yeah. So during your career, you served as a CIA intelligence briefer, uh, the daily briefer to uh, President Clinton. Uh, you were also chief of station in Saudi Arabia right after the Kobar Towers uh, attack. And you're part of the team that stood up the National Counterterrorism Center, as you mentioned, under the director of national intelligence. As director of CIA, I'm assuming you spent a lot of time <laughs> dealing with the challenges of terrorism during that time frame. Uh, what lessons have you learned about how to detect, deter, and defeat terrorist threats to the United States as a result of your service to our nation, should, should we be leading with the kinetic responses uh, that we have traditionally led with, or is there, is there a better approach? Well, I don't think we have led with it. Certainly, uh, kinetic uh, responses or capabilities are among the tools that we use to counter terrorist uh, organizations. And um, you know, uh, since I uh, joined the agency in 1980, uh, the, the terrorist threat has evolved. Um, in the 1980s, it was a lot of Hezbollah uh, terrorist attacks that uh, claimed most American lives, particularly in Lebanon, mm-hmm. um, and Iranian-sponsored terrorism. Uh, then it's morphed into uh, Sunni terrorism, because Hezbollah is from the, sort of, uh, the Iranian Shia sort of uh, domain. Uh, Al-Qaeda, and then it developed into ISIS and other types of things. And so I think the intelligence community uh, is doing a, a good job of trying to identify some of those upstream causes and, and factors and conditions that contribute to the development of these groups that sometimes are just you know ideological in nature. They're not violent to begin with, but then frequently they are exploited and manipulated by those elements that really want to carry out these terrorist and violent attacks. So the United States, I think, has tried to use a full array of tools to try to counter it. And during the Obama, Obama administration, when I was President Obama's assistant for counterterrorism and also at CIA, what we tried to do was to have a combination of tools, and we would only use um, direct effects, kinetic action, lethal strikes, if there was no other way to stop a terrorist attack or to stop a terrorist operative from carrying out their activities. Uh, and President Obama, I think, was, was very adamant that we pursue all different opportunities 
to bring individuals to justice or to prevent and thwart terrorist operations short of carrying out an attack. Uh, but when we couldn't do that, and it was a question of whether or not uh, we take a strike or we let this operation continue, putting at risk dozens or hundreds, if not thousands, of American lives as well as other innocent lives, President Obama recognized that the first and principal responsibility of the President of the United States is to protect the lives of his citizens or her citizens. And so therefore, uh, again, I think it was an effective way to basically dismantle a lot of al-Qaeda's organization and take away its lethal capabilities uh, as a result of a concerted effort within the U.S. government, but also working very closely with the partners and allies abroad. Uh, the tools you talk about, those are, you know, we, we think of those as the tools of national power. We talk about that uh, a lot on our on our show here. Um, obviously, there's the hard power aspect of, uh, of the tools, and then there's the soft power aspect. You, you talked about the intelligence community finding uh, opportunities upstream before terrorists become a, a serious threat. Uh, should the United States be making greater investments into economic development and the rule of law in places around the world where... Uh, terrorism has uh, become a problem. Is that more beneficial? Well, I think it's run? it's part of the solution uh, to address the economic uh, factors uh, as well as some of the local political factors and corruption and some other things that yeah. contribute to the growth of these terrorist organizations. Um, I was uh, responsible in large measure during the Obama administration for what was happening in Yemen because Yemen became a hotbed of terrorist activity in al-Qaeda and was a launching pad for a number of their attacks. But uh, the people of Yemen also were beset by tremendous poverty, by health issues, by real economic challenges and rampant corruption uh, and other things. And so what we tried to do is to have a multi-pronged strategy whereby we'd be able to address the terrorist challenge, but at the same time try to improve the lives of Yemenis. And so we prevent the next generation of terrorists from actually finding their way to these terrorist bandwagons. And it's a difficult challenge, and frequently it takes a lot of resources, a lot of effort. Uh, we worked with some of our partners and allies, uh, not just in the region but beyond on Yemen, but these are really difficult problems, many of them seemingly intractable. And uh, so it's not just in Yemen and Somalia, but other countries, Afghanistan, Pakistan, other places, where a lot of the local conditions uh, really do abet the development of these terrorist organizations. Yeah. So the CIA, uh, as a member of the intelligence community, it's a little different than the other members of the intelligence community. Uh, could you explain to our listeners why CIA is kind of unique amongst the, the 18 partners in the U.S. intelligence community? <laughs> well, if you ask a former CIA <laughs> officer why it's unique, we'll say, well, we're the best of the best. Uh, but uh, the CIA uh, recently celebrated its 75th anniversary. It was created in 1947. Uh, it has some of the principal responsibilities in national security uh, for the U.S. government, uh, it is the, the uh, organization responsible for collecting clandestine intelligence from human source networks. It's the lead on the human uh, front, but also it does a lot in terms of collecting technical uh, intelligence. Uh, so that clandestine responsibility that resides in the operations elements within the CIA is a very, very important one uh, for the U.S. intelligence community to learn what's going on around the globe. 
Secondly, the CIA also has primary responsibility for all source analytic assessments within the intelligence community. We have the best analysts. They have a very rigorous training program, and there are individuals who have spent their lives you know, studying, uh, analyzing the developments around the globe. And so these are the people who produce the daily intelligence briefs that go into the president and other senior officials. And so that all source intelligence uh, assessment and, an- and analytic responsibility is, is unique. Also, uh, CIA carries out covert action. Covert action is when the administration wants to change the shape of uh, developments uh, abroad but hide the hand of the United States. And so when a president wants to uh, tap the CIA to conduct a covert action activity, uh, that president has to sign a finding. All the CIA's covert action programs are authorized and directed by the president of the United States. And so there have been some notable ones over the years. Some failed, you know, the, uh, the, the Bay of Pigs fiasco in, in Cuba, but also a lot of activities that uh, were quite successful as a result of these covert action responsibilities. CIA also has the primary responsibility for dealing with foreign intelligence services, that liaison responsibility for our uh, senior intelligence officers that uh, reside overseas and work overseas. They work very closely with their counterparts. I served in Saudi Arabia. I was the head intelligence officer there for many years and uh, worked very closely with a lot of the Saudi counterparts. Uh, sometimes in a very, it was very frustrating, but uh, this is something that the CIA has responsibility for because as good as the CIA is, we have to work with uh, other agencies and uh, services around the globe to carry out our responsibilities. And then finally, we have a, a shared responsibility with the FBI and National Security Agency and some others on the counterintelligence front. Just like we're conducting espionage and activities around the globe, we're trying to uncover and thwart and uh, deter a lot of these activities from taking place. But So we have that responsibility, try to prevent foreign countries and services from interfering in our elections, for example, but also trying to uh, carry out uh, espionage activities here in the States and and collect intelligence. Uh, and we recently have some incidents of information that is uh, in an unauthorized uh, manner uh, being disclosed publicly. So these are the responsibilities the CIA has, and uh, I, I do believe it's a unique organization, but it has to work with other agencies throughout the intelligence community and law enforcement community as well. Uh, I think there's an esprit de corps at CIA. Um, uh, I'd like to think it's not arrogance. Uh, it's, it needs to be a collaborative spirit uh, working with our, their fellow uh, uh, One of the other officers. things that I find kind of unique about CIA is that all of the other members of the intelligence community, the other 17, well, 16 members, because the director of national intelligence is sort of a unique entity on, unto itself, but they all fall under a cabinet secretary, but CIA does not. Uh, so as director, you reported directly to the president. Is that right? I did. Um, it used to be that uh, the head of the CIA also was the head of the intelligence community when it was the director of central intelligence. And then the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act that you referenced before, it split the job um, of the CIA director from the director of national intelligence, which is it's now called. Uh, and the CIA, uh, it doesn't report to the director of national intelligence, although the director of national intelligence is the senior most intelligence official in the U.S. government, according to the org chart. But yes, the director of CIA, because of a lot of those unique responsibilities and authorities, reports directly to the president of the United States. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today for this special edition of National Security This Week is former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Mr. John Brennan, and we're discussing a wide range of national security challenges and opportunities. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org.
Uh, Director Brennan, I'd like to pivot over to the conflict in Ukraine, if, if we could. Uh, relations between the United States and Russia sort of started to deteriorate during the George W. Bush administration, uh, all the way through to the second half of, uh, of the Obama administration. Uh, from my perspective, I think that was driven in large measure by the actions uh, taken by Vladimir Putin uh, to coerce uh, Russia's neighbors, and also the, the election in 2016 certainly didn't, uh, didn't help. As CIA director and throughout your career, I'm, I'm sure you spent a good bit of time <laughs> considering the challenges from a resurgent Russia uh, bent on upending the post-World War II international order. Uh, what do you believe is Putin's end state objective in Ukraine? Well, I think he certainly uh, wanted, uh, when he uh, launched this invasion of Ukraine uh, last February, to swallow Ukraine whole. Uh, he believed that he had the capability as well as the right uh, to uh, just take over a sovereign state. Uh, he believed that Ukraine was tilting uh, to the west. And uh, he felt it was a real threat because it could, in fact, lead to uh, further tilts uh, in, that, in that area. Uh, he believes that uh, Russia should be playing a much more sort of predominant role on the world stage. Uh, he believes in a revanchist Russia that it has a right. In Ukraine, it was the home of the Russian Orthodox Church. Uh, and uh, felt as though that uh, he could do that and get away with it and that it would be accomplished very quickly. So his, his purpose was to reclaim what he thought was, was rightly uh, Mother Russia's um, ownership of that, that part of the, the globe. Um, but he also, I think, has said that uh, the greatest uh, tragedy of the of the last century was the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So I think he has these illusions of, of reclaiming that grandeur that once existed. So the U.S. And, and our NATO allies, amongst other nations, have been supporting Ukraine's resistance uh, to the Russian invasion. Uh, Ukrainian forces have really devastated Russia's forces, uh, including the Wagner Group mercenaries, and uh, the Ukrainian spring offensive is just about to get underway, I think, uh, from what I've read. Uh, estimates indicate the Russians have taken over 200,000 casualties at this point. That's, that's uh, wounded and killed. Uh, they've lost uh, roughly 3,000 tanks, perhaps a similar number or a greater number of armored personnel carriers and infantry fighting vehicles. Uh, they've lost artillery, helicopters, fighter and attack jets, and, and even some ships, amazingly enough. How, how do you think this conflict ends? Uh, what can the U.S. do to bolster Ukraine's hand at the negotiating table? Uh, or, or does this actually end with Ukraine forcefully ejecting Russian uh, forces, Putin's elimination from within, or both, or some other alternative? <laughs> Boy, I wish I knew. <laughs> uh, I don't have a crystal ball, uh, but I, this has been a debacle uh, for for Putin. Uh, he clearly overstated uh, uh, the capabilities of the Russian military, and the the sheer incompetence uh, of the Russian military, I think, has been exposed. Uh, there's no way that he's going to back down. Um, it's existential for him. He is more susceptible to pressure from his right wing inside of Russia than from his left anti-war wing. And so, therefore, I think he's going to continue to do whatever he can to try to you know, bring the Ukrainians to, to heal. Um, so I, I, I don't see this having a negotiated solution uh, under while Putin is there. Uh, there could be some negotiations as far as a ceasefire or a, a frozen conflict in some areas. I had to deal quite a bit with the Russians uh, over Syria uh, when we were trying to get uh, ceasefires put in place as refugees were uh, 
trying to evacuate Aleppo in Syria. And the Russians will agree to cease fires uh, when it's in their interest, and they will violate them on a whim if it's in their interest as well. So I have no confidence that any type of agreement or understanding with the Russians would hold up um, because I do believe that uh, Putin is determined to try to wring some type of success out of out of this military invasion. But uh, I, I do think that uh, you know it's probably the upcoming offensive is really going to be tough to really make a lot of gains on the ground because both sides are entrenched. Uh, I know there's war weariness on, on both sides, uh, but maybe uh, something is going to develop inside of uh, the Russian establishment whereby Putin is going to be somehow pushed aside. Uh, maybe it's more hope <laughs> than a strategy at this point, but uh, I, I do not see an exit ramp uh, for Russia and for Putin at this time. Uh, somebody who succeeds Putin could point the finger of blame, um, but that would be quite a uh, a, a development, and uh, it could lead to upheaval in Russia, and it also could lead to somebody even more right-wing and more radical and more violent than Putin emerging. Uh, so I think there's still a lot of uncertainty here, um, which is why I am so glad that the uh, unity of the NATO countries in providing support to Ukraine on the military front, on the economic front, uh, providing increasing, increasingly sophisticated weapon systems. Uh, this is what Ukraine needs to be able to withstand the Russian onslaught. And the longer the Ukrainians can withstand it, I think the greater chance there is that this will ultimately come out uh, in the right place. Uh, so in the lead-up to the war, uh, lead-up to the Russian invasion, uh, the United States and all of our NATO allies, and, uh, we, we sort of... We worked very closely uh, with the rest of the NATO allies and, frankly, partner nations around the world. We shared a lot of intelligence. We did it publicly, uh, which was something I had never seen during my 25-year career in the Navy. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen anything similar, but that sharing of information really uh, unmasked what, uh, what Putin's plans were, what the Russian plans were before the invasion, and even things that have happened during the war. Uh, is this the new normal? Well, it, I think there was quite a bit of attention played to to that, uh, certainly on the eve of the Russian invasion and even afterward in terms of how much intelligence passed. But if we look back in history, look at what the United States did in the Cuban Missile Crisis. Look at what the United States did when they were forming coalitions to try to push Iraq out of Kuwait. Uh, what we had did uh, were dealing with al-Qaeda. And so I, I think it's very important for administrations and intelligence community to be able to leverage the knowledge that exists within the intelligence realm uh, in order to support some of these very important uh, policy initiatives of the the U.S. government in order to bring um, our partners and allies on board. So I I, I do think it's it's case-specific. Um, and I think sometimes it maybe look like it's even more now because we have so many more types of collection capabilities and so many more intelligence sources, and so we're able to push out a lot more. But uh, I do think it's important. Intelligence is not an end in itself. It has to be used to empower or to inform. And for many, many years, it's been very good at informing U.S. policymakers. Well, since we work so closely with a lot of our partners and allies on these critical issues, I think we the U.S. intelligence really needs to inform and empower others to join forces with us. Yeah, uh, You had mentioned Syria. I'd like to ask a follow-up question on that. So you were director uh, at the time when uh, we actually coordinated pretty well with the Russians to figure out how to get rid of 
chemical weapons in Syria's possession. Is that is that right? Do I have it right? We, we, we did, and it was uh, after President Obama made, uh, now I guess maybe infamous, uh, red line statement that uh, if Assad continued to use chemical weapons that the United States would take military action. And it was after he made that statement and after the Syrians used it again was when uh, Secretary Kerry and Foreign Minister Lavrov had discussed the potential for an uh, internationally overseen uh, effort to destroy Syria's chemical weapons stockpile, which was massive and which was a real concern of U.S. intelligence as well as Israeli intelligence for many years. And so when we were presented with that opportunity, President Obama felt that uh, military strikes against Syria would have a very uncertain impact. We also didn't know about the chemical weapons plume that would you know, s- s- drift over, over Syria. Uh, it would be easy for the Syrians to hide the material. We wouldn't get everything. But if the Russians were on board, and since Russia was Syria's main benefactor and protector, that gave us confidence that we would be able to eradicate what was a real serious concern for U.S. and Israeli uh, interests over the course of so many years. Uh, another follow-up question I'd like to ask: uh, Do you know the name David Geo at all? Uh, he's sort of a he's a professor at uh, West Point, uh, but he also is teaching oh, yes. over in yeah. uh, in the UK right now. Right. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, I know. He, <laughs> email he, contact with him. Yeah. <laughs> he uh, he was on the show a few a couple months back, and one of the things that he had come out with an article talking about the fact that uh, Russia in the Soviet Union days, Soviet intelligence was pretty good at gathering information from around the world and guiding Soviet foreign policy, Soviet national security decision-making. But under Russia today, most of the intelligence apparatus is actually designed to protect the, the regime, to protect the government. That was sort of his, uh, his take on things. And so the Russians got the analysis really wrong in Ukraine. Plus, there's a whole bunch of other things that were fundamentally flawed about it. But would you, would you agree with that, or do you still think that the Russian foreign intelligence collection capability is something to be concerned about? Well, there are three principal Russian intelligence security services, the SVR. Uh, sometimes people refer to it as the Russian equivalent of the CIA. I take umbrage at that, but <laughs> it is the organization responsible for collecting foreign intelligence on behalf of the Russian government. There's the GRU, which is the Russian military intelligence. And then there's the FSB, the Federal Security Bureau which has responsible for, responsibility for internal security inside of Russia. But the FSB, interestingly, also has responsibility for intelligence collection in the former Soviet states. So the FSB was in the lead in Ukraine. It wasn't the SVR. It wasn't the foreign intelligence element. And I do think the F- FSB really you know, missed it by a wide mile because <laughs> I think they basically told Putin that uh, the Ukrainians were not going to be able to stand up to the Russian onslaught that a lot of Ukrainians would welcome the Russians in. Well, they got it completely wrong, and and a number of those FSB officials were sacked, if not dealt with (laughs) even more severely. Uh, But it it was that internal security service that uh, had the responsibility. But uh, the SVR is a a capable international uh, espionage organization that we have to deal with quite a bit. The GRU uh, also, uh, the military intelligence, was very active in, in Syria and throughout the Middle East. It still is. So the, the Russians have a variety of intelligence and security organizations, uh, but uh, they, they missed it uh, badly in Ukraine. Uh, so on this intelligence issue, uh, we just had this leak. You mentioned it at the start of our conversation, the, the information that has come out. Uh, what do you make of it? 
What, what do you make of this situation? <laughs> it's a mess. Uh, there were times when I was director of CIA that I had to deal with disclosures of, let's say, a, a report or an, an issue. And so I would have to call some of my partners abroad and basically express regret and tell them that we're doing everything possible to you know, mitigate any type of, of damage as a result. It, it's, the, it's the breadth of the information that is coming out, at least reported in the press. It touches upon so many different regions of the world, uh, so many issues. Uh, it has what's called the raw intelligence uh, reports uh, that uh, touch uh, so many countries and so many partners as well as uh, so many uh, areas that um, it, it is is devastating in many respects. Uh, and what is very troubling is that we don't know what else might already be out there, what might be coming, and who is behind this. Uh, so the counterintelligence uh, professionals, uh, especially at the Bureau and Department of Defense, but also throughout the intelligence community, are working feverishly right now to mitigate the damage, to try to uncover who is responsible for it, but also to see what compromise there might be of sources and methods so we can move human sources out of harm's way or maybe temporarily shut down some of these very sensitive technical collection systems that could be exposed as a result of this, uh, but also then to uh, talk to our partners and allies to let them know that just because something appears uh, in an intelligence report doesn't mean that it's true and accurate. Uh, because I, there's a lot of concern that, you know, it shows that the U.S. has been involved in different types of spying activities abroad that might not just be directed at adversaries, but um, and some of the things that maybe some of our you know friends and allies are doing. Uh, so it, uh, there's a lot of cleanup on right. aisle nine for this one, <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's going to be going on, I think, for quite some time. Uh, so, Director Brennan, we d- we need to take just a short break uh, to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.com. And we are back uh, for this special edition of National Security This Week, and our, our, uh, our guest today is former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Mr. John Brennan. So, Director Brennan, uh, when you were director of CIA, uh, the U.S. And, and other major powers were able to get Iran to agree to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, as it has been abbreviated. The Iranian nuclear deal was widely denounced by some, including Israel, as not being hard enough on Iran. Uh, one of the criticisms was that it gave Iran sort of an out to go ahead and develop a nuclear weapons program uh, in the 2030s. That was the core concern that uh, caused a lot of controversy. Uh, the Trump administration uh, pulled the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear agreement, and Iran eventually gave up on the whole JCPOA process. They've since, uh, according to many of the press reports, uh, enriched uranium to about the 85% mark, just shy of uh, what is considered weapons-grade plutonium needed to build nuclear weapons. Uh, Israel has officially signaled to the United States, uh, again, this is in press reports, that they will strike Iran if they feel Iran threatens their country. Uh, The IAEA uh, just signed an agreement with Iran, but many are questioning how long the hardline government uh, in Iran will abide by that agreement, if at all. Uh, Can you give us a sense of what's actually happening here? And the reason I ask this is it seems highly unlikely to me that the Iranian religious and political leaders would voluntarily end the Islamic Revolution, the Islamic Republic, by attacking Israel or anyone else with a nuclear weapon. Uh, they are rational actors, I, I believe. 
what is the signaling, quote unquote, that is uh, that is actually happening right now by Iran, by Israel, even by the United States, and, and certainly even by Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and Egypt over this whole nuclear program situation in Iran? Well, I was a strong supporter of the Iranian nuclear deal. Um, no deal is perfect. You don't get everything you want out of a negotiation. But I was quite surprised at how much the Iranians were willing to give up in terms of centrifuges, its stockpile of enriched uranium, other types of things. And the criticisms you pointed out was that the Iranians were not going to abide by it, number one, and that in 15 years or so, it gave them an out. Well, what happened? You know, during the Trump administration, the United States got out of the deal and didn't abide by its terms, even though we agreed to it. The Security Council, uh, called the P5 plus 1, which is the Security Council plus Germany, agreed to it, endorsed. Uh, and we were able to confirm and verify that the Iranians did take these steps to really reduce their nuclear weapons program uh, and the, the pursuit of it. Uh, and so what has happened now? One is that it really has damaged U.S. credibility. And a lot of countries now and governments are saying, why should they trust the word of the United States? Because one administration agrees to something, such as the JCPOA with Iran or the Paris Climate Accord or the Trans-Pacific Partnership in Asia, only to have it undone by the following administration. And so what confidence they have that the U.S. commitments are going to be durable and endure from one administration to the next. So that's a broader, I think, impact. The Iranians uh, will continue to flirt with a, with a nuclear capability um, because they believe that the United States, along with Israel and other countries, are determined to get rid of the theocracy in Tehran. And so just like uh, Kim Jong-un in North Korea who's attained a nuclear weapons capability, believes that having a nuclear weapons capability is a deterrent to the United States and South Korea trying to unseat uh, the government in Pyongyang and to unify the peninsula under the South Korean domination. Uh, and that's something that the North Koreans have long said, that only having a nuclear deterrent is going to help to protect them. I think there are folks in Iran who feel the same way. Only if the Iranians have a nuclear capability will the United States and Israel not continue what they believe are efforts to undermine that uh, clerical regime. So um, unfortunately, uh, we see now that the Iranians and the Russians have formed a, a bit of a, an alliance uh, on, the, on the weapons front, on drones and the production of missiles and other types of things. Uh, so I, I do think that it was a very, very ill-advised uh, for the Trump administration to tear up that agreement. Uh, the Obama administration felt that by, by forging this agreement, it would help the moderates inside of Iran. And Iran is not a monolith. There, are, there were certainly moderates there, maybe fewer of them now because of what has happened. Uh, but also it would give us time to be able to strengthen the terms of that deal. And so those individuals who basically were claiming that it was a flawed agreement because it gave the Iranians a way out over time, I think that is disingenuous. Uh, again, we could have taken steps over time to strengthen and to lengthen the term of that agreement, uh, but it was never given a chance. I think it's also uh, been interesting because as Iranian as Iran has gotten more enriched uh, uranium, uh, you've you've heard some rumblings in some of the other countries in the region, Saudi Arabia especially, uh, that they might pursue their own program as a counterbalance to Iran. And I'm wondering if Turkey or Egypt might pursue that course as well. I, I, mean, I don't think it's in anybody's interest that we proliferate more nuclear weapons development programs around the world 
Uh, is this something we should be concerned about? Oh, oh, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why the Obama administration was so determined to forge this agreement, because the Saudis, and especially Saudis and the Emiratis in the Gulf, believe that if the Iranians were able to get a nuclear weapons program in place, that they would have no choice but to either develop one of their own or to acquire a nuclear weapons capability from maybe an already existing nuclear state, like Pakistan or, or China or something. And so the, the, the non-proliferation effort uh, that the United States really has led over the past number of years really would then be hurt if uh, a country such as Iran were able to make that leap to actually a nuclear weapons program. So um, it would just be opening even more of a Pandora's box. So Saudi Arabia just reestablished relations with Iran in a deal brokered by China. China has been expanding its influence around the world, including uh, most more recently in the Middle East. Uh, d- does this concern you? <laughs> well, the, the Iran and Saudi Arabia had relations for many years, and they, they were they were broken a number, half dozen years ago or so or more, and the Chinese were able to get them to agree to reestablish it. Uh, I wonder what the Chinese have provided to the Iranians to get them to do that. Um, the, the Saudis have been flirting with the Chinese for quite a bit. Uh, it's a way also, I think, for the Crown Prince, Mohammed Salman, to tweak the nose of the United States and, and maybe President Biden by showing what China can do in the area. Uh, but I, I do think if the Iranians and the Saudis are talking, and it's going to help to reduce the tensions in the region, I think that's a good thing. So I have to, you know, we'll have to look and see how this relationship develops. Uh, I don't think Iran has changed its stripes, but maybe it also will help to bring some relief to the war-torn country of Yemen, given that Iran and Saudi Arabia provide support to different factions there. Yeah, so it's not just a proxy fight uh, in Yemen uh, with with uh, Iran supporting the Houthis, but. Uh, Saudi Arabia is actually directly engaged in that fight to a certain extent and has yeah. been for many years. Yeah, they have uh, fired missiles and strikes and aircraft strikes you know, quite extensively there. The Emiratis were involved as well. And it's a, uh, the international community, I think, terms uh, the situation in Yemen today one of the worst humanitarian crises. It's awful. Uh, it's awful. It's a beautiful world. country. I've yeah. been there over a dozen times, but it's, uh, it's a shame what has happened to the country. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today for this special edition of National Security This Week is former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Mr. John Brennan, and we're discussing a wide range of national security challenges and opportunities. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Director Brennan, we've got about 15 minutes or so uh, left today. Uh, I want to focus more on China. Uh, Xi Jinping just received a third term as president of the People's Republic of China, uh, kind of unprecedented uh, to a certain extent. Uh, He controls the nation now. Most of the opposition voices uh, have been removed. Uh, She just just visited Russia for talks with Vladimir Putin about bringing the Russia-Ukraine war to an end. Uh, He's also visited uh, Belarus, had the standard photo op with uh, Lukashenko, uh, the president of Belarus. Uh, she has stated that nuclear weapons should not be a part of this Ukraine conflict in any way, shape, or form. And then after those meetings, Russia uh, announced and then deployed nuclear weapons into Belarus. Uh, former U.S. Ambassador to Russia, Mike McFaul, provided uh, commentary on this issue. He basically said that she had been roundly embarrassed by Putin and Lukashenko over this nuclear weapons move. Uh, how do you see the relationship between Russia and China at this point? Uh, who's the stronger, more relevant partner in that, in that quote-unquote friendship, uh, that entente? Uh, what kind of leverage can both Putin and she use on each other to push their respective national security imperatives? 
And how concerned should the United States be about the establishment of an actual alliance between Russia and China with the inclusion of other autocrats or dictators from around the world? Well, I think China certainly is in a much stronger position globally than Russia. First of all, its, its economy, its technological developments, uh, its, its presence throughout the, the globe. Um, and so um, I, Putin really needs Xi to lend even tacit support to the invasion of Ukraine. Now, Xi has been trying to straddle both worlds. He doesn't want to alienate the West, uh, the United States, Europe, and others, because he recognizes that China's economy really has to feed off of you know, Western capitalism. Uh, and so he's been very, very cautious about going too far over uh, to Russia's uh, side, uh, which is why we've given some very stern and direct messages publicly to Xi not to provide any type of you know, weapons or munitions to Russia. Uh, I do not believe that the Chinese will do that overtly and openly because they risk a lot. But uh, the the thing that brings China and Russia together most at this point is a shared interest in trying to knock the United States down multiple pegs on that global stage. Uh, China believes that it can supplant and displace the United States on that global stage as being the world's predominant power. Economic and China's economy, you know, will at one point surpass the United States. Just a question of when, on the technology front and even on the military front, as they continue to build up their capabilities, both conventional and unconventional weapon systems. So, um, and and Putin recognizes that you know his fight against the West primarily is against the United States, and so to the extent that he can get China support for that. Uh, he is certainly going to, you know, uh, try to carry favor with uh, with Xi Jinping. You know, whether the the Russians and Chinese have their own issues, they've had issues over the years. Uh, they have a long border, uh, but right now, I think there's a commonality of interests in terms of trying to do things that are going to undermine U.S. interests. There, as you point out, Xi Jinping was uh, reelected for a third five-year term. I would be wouldn't be surprised at all if he's going to be there for another 15 years. He has masterfully uh, been able to remove a lot of his rivals for power uh, using the anti-corruption drive uh, for the past several years as a way to very surgically uh, remove individuals that he believed might pose a threat to him. And now at the recent Chinese People's Congress, uh, a number of his closest advisors and sycophants are part of the standing committee. So he has a, a true monopoly on power. Now, you know, in autocracies, uh, you don't have to deal with the messiness of democracy and elections and other types of things. But also, he has to be very careful of not misstepping. And given that China has had a lot of problems with COVID, with the global economic challenges, recession, other things, uh, he has to try to preserve China's standing and enhance that standing economically, politically, and and then also when it comes to Taiwan. So, uh, again, she is going to... He's a very strategic thinker. He, he avoids missteps, uh, and he's going to be uh, very uh, strategic and calculating in how he moves his pieces on this global chessboard. So we talked a little while ago about uh, Russian intelligence, uh, the three major, main Russian intelligence services. Uh, China has the Ministry of State Security as one of their, their premier uh, organizations. Uh, I've had a couple of guests on from the FBI uh, over the course of this show, and they talk about the fact that uh, the FBI opens up a counterintelligence investigation on China every 12 hours, a new one every 12 hours. Uh, as uh, you know, former director of CIA, uh, you are obviously responsible for counterintelligence uh, around the world. 
uh, in support of you know protecting American national security interests. How do you see that threat from uh, Chinese intelligence? Very serious. The, the Chinese have a rapacious appetite for information, and they also have the technological wherewithal and capabilities as well as the mechanisms to try to collect intelligence. And so, yeah, I really do commiserate with my FBI colleagues that um, they have their hands full. Uh, the Chinese are just so aggressive and they're just so much that they're involved in. Uh, the Russians, I think, are, are much more surgical and, and directed. Uh, but when we look at some of China's uh, cyber uh, um, efforts, uh, they, they really tried to just cover the waterfront. Um, they're caught a lot. They're not all that sophisticated in some of these areas, but there's just so much of it, they're almost trying to overwhelm the opposition by just the constant you know, nature of their, their efforts. Uh, so uh, you point out, you know, Ministry of State Security, you know, the PLA, um, the People's Liberation Army, has a lot of people in it. And the Chinese have also been very cunning in terms of how they've used parastatal organizations, uh, companies that have a relationship with the government, uh, sometimes overtly, and a lot of Chinese companies. And right now we're in the midst of this big brouhaha dealing with TikTok right. and some of the other things that, that China, uh, Chinese companies uh, are, are doing that uh, has national security implications that worries my former colleagues at the CIA and FBI and other places because of how it has the potential to be able to suck out of this country, critical information that the Chinese can then exploit for their own purposes. And it's not just uh, uh, national security espionage. It's also industrial espionage that, uh, that China has been collecting on uh, to kind of reverse engineer, boost their own companies. Uh, is, is it economic warfare? Is that what the China is essentially doing here? I, I would think that, that corporate espionage is probably the predominant um, activity that China involved involved in because, first of all, they want to understand what our capabilities are, uh, certainly in the, in the on the military and intelligence front, and going after the, the military-industrial complex here in the United States is a way to do that. But also, as you point out, they're trying to steal intellectual property so they can then reverse engineer it and duplicate it and do it at a much cheaper uh, rate, uh, and so therefore be able to, again, displace, you know, U.S. technology and capabilities out there. And, and on the uh, on microchips and supercomputers and other things, quantum computing, uh, the Chinese really want to be a at the lead. And so they recognize that the West, and particularly the United States, I mean, really holds the keys to being able to have that dominant position over time in that ever-changing uh, dynamic uh, technological world. Uh, so, Director Brennan, we're, we're sort of closing in on the end of our show for today. I always try to give my guests the, the final word. Uh, are there any other global hotspots that you'd like to touch on while, while we have a little time remaining in the show? Anything that you're looking at that maybe isn't getting the coverage in the press that it should, that, that concerns you? Well, when you say hotspots, I take that literally, especially on a table where I have 86 <laughs> degrees here in Minneapolis, because I am very concerned about uh, climate change and extreme weather. Uh, we're seeing. Um, it's like the proverbial uh, frog in the boiling pot of water. Uh, we continue to see evidence of how climate change is manifesting itself around the globe, but the impact on international stability and, and 
and security, I think, is profound over time. When I look at the rising seawaters and what it's going to do to coastal communities and how it's going to push these, these communities into uh, the urban centers and put additional pressure uh, on, on countries to try to deal with this, you know, burgeoning populations in these urban areas, but also pushing people across borders and it's going to increase uh, migration, illicit and other types of migration, uh, and just the, the challenges of having to deal with extreme weather, whether you're talking about floods or droughts, other things. This has a tremendous impact economically, uh, socially, uh, culturally, uh, and politically. And I think it can lead to greater interstate tensions uh, and as countries vie for maybe the resources and capabilities that exist uh, across the border, uh, which is why we have to stand up to Mr. Putin's uh, uh, just blatant and brazen effort to try to capture another sovereign country. If if might is going to prevail, what is going to protect some of these smaller countries from having big powers like Russia or China or wherever just swallow them up? And that's why the United States' very principal position, I think, is a critically important one. And we need to recognize that this is not just an issue dealing with Ukraine, but I think it has broader global repercussions over time. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great point. Uh, we should probably end it there. Uh, it, it is an existential crisis for humanity. Uh, climate change, it's probably a, a, good, a good one to, uh, to finish on. Um, Director Brennan, thank you so much for, for joining us today for this show. Uh, I, I want to I let you go now so you have a little bit of time between uh, now and when you uh, have the dinner here at the, the University Club and give an actual speech, and then I guess it's a, sort of a fireside chat with uh, – uh, the head of the uh, Committee on Foreign Relations, uh, Tom Hansen. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, John. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I was very fortunate throughout my career to have some really fascinating uh, experiences. And so I love being able to share my experiences with people who are interested in national security and uh, the future of this country. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, and we started this show to sort of uh, you know help educate people here in the upper Midwest about issues of, of American national security interests. And uh, we've been on the show for two and a half years now. <laughs> it's gone by so fast. Amazing. Uh, so again, thank you, sir. Thank you, John. Uh, so for our audience, uh, there's another announcement I want to make. Uh, there's another group uh, in the Twin Cities area in Minnesota, really. It's called Global Minnesota. And Global Minnesota is partnering up with the Humphrey School of Public Affairs for a discussion with Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs, uh, Ken Moy. That's going to be uh, on April 24th at 2 p.m. at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. The topic is, What's Next for the U.S. Indo-Pacific Strategy? And you can register for free at www.globalminnesota.org. That closes this special edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. look forward to sharing your time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. during our regular broadcast. We'll be joined by Commander Andrea Cameron from the U.S. Naval War College, and we're going to talk about the nexus of climate change and U.S. national security. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.